Yeah, you say it like that. My goodness. Well, it's an absolute joy to be among you. Uh, we've been praying for your church. I've heard much about Southwest Harbor Congregational Church and, and the work that God's doing here. And we've gotten to know Blake a little bit, know Jacob and his family. But to be here uh, is much better. So it's just really fun to see your faces, to meet and talk with some of you. Thank you for having me. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll hear from his word. Bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for your grace, grace to gather this morning with your people. Thank you for giving us a sure word, a revelation of your son. And so we're praying and asking God that in your grace, you would help us to see the Lord Jesus Christ this morning in your word. And so as it's proclaimed, would you move among us and stir our hearts and help us to be men and women of faith, trusting you and resting in you as our heavenly father. We give this time to you. We ask you to be at work among us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have four kids, one wife, four kids. Uh, Shannon and I are delighted to have Colton, who is 11, Jocelyn, who's nine, Bryson, who's seven, and little Gracie, who is four. And uh, it's really fun to be a dad. It's great to be a dad. I love it. It's a lot of work, but it's also very enjoyable. It's very rich, and it's a... It's a weighty responsibility, too, a sobering responsibility to be a dad. And so I often wonder what my children will be like, say, in 20 years. Will they be married? Will there be grandkids? What will they be doing for work? Will they be with us forever in a basement bedroom? May it never be. (laughs) And I also wonder what our relationship will be like. Will they have moved far away? Will they be living close by? Will they... Remain connected with us? Will they enjoy visiting? Will we have a good adult relationship? Really, I wonder about how they'll be doing. Will they be stable? Will they be successful? Will they turn to Jesus and become godly adults? Will they be happy? Will they be safe? I suspect if you're a parent, you can relate. You have similar concerns. And if you're a child, if you're a young adult here, maybe you also have similar thoughts. But from the other perspective, you're on the the receiving end of parenting. In other words, your concern is about how to relate to mom or how you relate to dad as you grow older. Does he love me? Does he accept me? Does she value me? Does she support me? Can I trust them to provide for me and protect me? There's there's really no relationship quite like the parent-child relationship, is there? It can be powerful and and sweet and influential, but at the same time, can't it be pretty vulnerable? That relationship's full of risk. What if something goes wrong? What if things don't turn out well? Some of you have experienced the real pain that results when those relationships don't go well, either with a parent or with a child. And as I step back and just survey our culture and the pressures of 21st century life and advancing technology, many things seem to be threatening the parent-child relationship. And as a dad, this can heighten my concern and cause me to be anxious or fearful because we don't live in a neutral world, do we? No, there are threats and there are dangers and there are hazards. And kids, teens, you're aware of this too. Relating well to your parents can be challenging. You have, to, you have your own problems within that make that hard, and then there's problems out there, right, that make that hard. Well, why am I saying all of this this morning? 
Because God relates to you as a father. He relates to you as a heavenly father. Jesus, the son of God, spoke often about his relationship with his father in heaven. And you are designed to know God and enjoy him as your father. But that relationship is threatened. That relationship is under attack. It's your relationships, if your relationships with earthly parents are critical, then how much more important is your relationship with him, with your heavenly father? So let me ask you this morning, how have you been relating to God? Would you warmly call him your father? Do you feel fully accepted by him this morning? And are you enjoying all the benefits of knowing God as your father? Do you even know what those benefits are and how to pursue them? And if this significant relationship is vulnerable, then what threatens it? What dangers and hazards seek to thwart your view of God? How can you fight to trust him and to delight in him as your father? Well, I think our text from Galatians 3 will help us this morning. It will answer these questions. And Lord willing, it will allow you to gain confidence in the life that God has promised you as his son. So let's begin by reading. You can turn to Galatians chapter 3, and I'm going to begin reading verses 15 through 18. Follow along with me. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, I know you've spent some good time in Galatians recently, but I need to still set some context for these verses. I'm kind of parachuting into Galatians with this one sermon. So you need to know Galatians is all about justification by faith alone. The Apostle Paul is defending that doctrine, the doctrine of justification, and he's warning the churches throughout the region of Galatia to not depart from it. Sinners are made right with God only through faith. And when you or I place our faith in Jesus Christ, God immediately declares us righteous. That's justification. And we aren't declared righteous because of works that we have done, but simply by believing in what God has accomplished through the cross of Jesus Christ. But the Galatian churches are tempted to turn away from this gospel, the purity of this gospel. Why is that? Well, because false teachers were influencing those churches. Enemies from among the Jews were persuading the saints to not only trust in Christ, but saying that they also had to adhere to the Mosaic law. They were drawing believers back under the law and requiring things like circumcision and observance of special days and seasons. And these leaders were a threat to the truth and the beauty of the gospel. So they were a threat to the church. And we often refer to these enemies as Judaizers. And Paul, in this letter, is exposing the Judaizers and declaring their gospel to be false. In fact, in chapter 1, Paul declares that they really have no gospel at all. They're to be accursed for preaching a different gospel, a false gospel. 
And then after making that assertion, Paul defends the true gospel. He defends the gospel of justification by faith alone, and he plainly states that gospel in chapter 2, verse 16. You can see that there if you're looking. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. There it is, clearly articulated. And then Paul defends that gospel. Beginning in chapter 3, he says that the Galatians first received the Spirit by faith. Verse 2 is a rhetorical question. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Well, the, the question's obvious, isn't it? By hearing with faith. That's how they obtained the Spirit, by faith. They were saved by grace the same way Abraham, way back in Genesis, was saved. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him, it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham was justified by faith. And now both Jews and Gentiles are being justified exactly the same way. Look at verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. The gospel, the same gospel that Paul's defending, was preached to Abraham when it was said, in you all the nations shall be blessed. If that doesn't sound like gospel to you, keep listening. Paul will unpack that very gospel in our text. So Paul, when we get to verse 15, is on He's in full-on defense mode. The Galatians have received the Spirit by faith. This was their experience when they saw Jesus Christ portrayed as crucified. And they believed. And this justification gospel is the same gospel that was preached to Father Abraham. So now in our passage, starting in verse 15, Paul's going to pivot on the word promise. The promise of God assures life. And surprise, surprise, it's by faith. The promise is received by faith. And first, in verse 15, Paul illustrates using a human example. Even man-made covenants are ratified and become binding. If a covenant is to remain valid, it shall go unbroken and unchanged. That's how it works among us in the world of covenants. Well, how much more with God? That's the argument in verse 16. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Now, promises were made by God to Abraham. And if covenantal promises here among men are fixed, how much more are God's promises to Abraham fixed and certain? And the promises were made to whom? What does the text say? To Abraham and to his offspring. And then Paul makes a big deal out of something that may seem rather small to you, at least at first glance anyway. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Not offsprings, plural, not referring to many, but rather referring to one. It says here, offspring, no S. And there are several places in Genesis where this was said to Abraham. And I'll just give one example, Genesis 12. So listen to Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the quote that you heard from Galatians 3.8. In you all the families of the, or uh, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Then Abraham takes his family to Canaan and listen to how the Lord speaks to him in verse 7 of Genesis 12. 
Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I give this land. To your offspring. There it is. Singular. Offspring. And you can find this many times in the book of Genesis. God makes gospel promises to Abraham and to his offspring. Now, who is that offspring? Who's that seed? Look at Galatians 3.16. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, that is Christ. It's Christ. The promises were ultimately given to him, to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the offspring. He's the seed. He's the recipient of the promises. So the covenant blessing, the, the land, the inheritance of families and nations were all promised in the final inheritance to Jesus. So why is the promise fixed? Why can you be assured of life by faith? Because the promise was given to Jesus Christ. That's why. And the law can't invalidate that promise. It can't. And why can't it? Well, Paul says because it came later. The law came 430 years after the promise. And thus it's subordinate. It doesn't have priority. That's Paul's argument in the text. The Mosaic law can't revoke or make void the promise because it's Johnny come lately. The Judaizers were probably making an argument that the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant were equal. They were of the, the same nature. And maybe that the Mosaic covenant had even supplanted the earlier Abrahamic covenant. But Paul argues to the contrary. He gives priority to the Abrahamic covenant. And that's why he features their differences in verse 18. The Mosaic covenant is not the same as the Abrahamic covenant. Because the law has a different function than the promise when it comes to inheritance. The inheritance can't come by the law as the Judaizers purport that it does. Because if it did, it wouldn't be by grace. It would no longer come by a promise. If it came by law, it would come by works, which would highlight human obedience. But it comes by promise, which means it comes by faith according to God's grace which highlights God's ability to save and to justify the ungodly and to adopt his people and to give the Spirit as a gift. It's all about promise, isn't it? And the covenant promise of God is not nullified by the law. The law does nothing to revoke or to add to the promise. The Mosaic covenant is secondary to the Abrahamic covenant, which was given to Christ himself. It was given to Jesus So the thoughtful listener hears this, listens to Paul's argument and says, well, then what's the what's the purpose of the law? Maybe you're wondering the same thing. So how would you answer that question? What do you think the purpose of the law is? Well, let's read the rest of our passage. Paul's going to answer this very question. Look at verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. 
But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to purpose. According to promise. Paul anticipates the lingering question in verse 19. Why then the law? And what's the purpose of the law? Paul says it was added because of transgressions. But what does that mean? I think it means that the law was given to increase transgressions. That's what Paul writes in Romans 5.20. The law came in to increase the trespass. Sin increased, he says. Or in Romans 7. That increase of sin is unpacked by Paul. He makes it clear that the law reveals sin. It makes sin known. It it even causes sin to flourish. He says in verse 8 of chapter 7, Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, through the law, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So he speaks of sin coming alive, or his sinful passions being aroused by the law. So in Galatians, the law was added because of transgressions. It was added to increase transgressions until Christ should come, until the offspring or the seed to whom the promise was made should come. And here we see that the law was not only subordinate, but it was temporary. It was interim. It was added until Christ should come. So the Law highlights the need for the promise. Do you see how it does that? Sin is the problem, right? And the law wasn't given to overcome your sin and to resolve that problem. It was given to amplify your sin and to amplify your perceived need for a Savior. It was given to anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ. That's what it was given for. The one who would fulfill the promise and atone for sin at the cross. I mean, after all, it was... Him, he was the one that was given the promise in the first place. And Paul says the law was given by an intermediary. That simply means Moses was involved. He's likely the intermediary mentioned here. He was given the law from God and then he took the law to the people, which implies that there were more than one involved of the the giving of the law to the people. And then he says it was put in place by angels, which might seem surprising. Yet in Deuteronomy 33, Moses does say that when God came down on Mount Sinai, that he came from the midst of myriads of holy ones. It's an interesting way to say it. Somehow it seems like angels were in the mix of the giving of that covenant. And both Acts 7 and Hebrews 2 mention angels in connection with the giving of the Mosaic covenant. So mediation was involved in the communication of the law. But how about the promise of the Abrahamic covenant? It was given directly to Abraham By God alone. In fact, God gave the covenant to Abraham in Genesis 15 after putting him in to a deep sleep. Do you remember that story? God states the covenant and then appears as a smoking fire pot and flaming torch and he passes between the pieces of the sacrifice, which signifies that the promise was dependent upon God alone. So Paul answers the question of verse 19. The purpose of the law is to highlight the need for the promise. And I think he includes mention of the angels and Moses to substantiate with his readers that he wasn't just dismissing the law out of hand. He wasn't laying the groundwork for lawlessness like I think the Judaizers would have 
accused him of doing. Rather, he esteemed the law as heaven sent and important. But nonetheless, it was different than the promise. It was subordinate to the covenant of the promise. Well, if this is the case, if the nature of the law and the promise were so different, then was the law opposed to the promise of God? Was the law against the promises of God? That's the question in verse 21. The ESV says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And what's Paul's quick response? No, certainly not. May it never be. The law is not contrary. Well, if it's not contrary, then what is the role of the law? Well, first, its role was not to give life. That wasn't the design of the law. If it had been, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But Paul's clearly arguing that justification is not by law. It's by faith. So the, the law can't give life. The law can't give you life. It's unable to do so. The law is holy and good and righteous and it's God-given, but it doesn't impart life, does it? It doesn't give you power to overcome sin. Rather, the law imprisons. Do you see that? It holds sinners captive. It enslaves you under sin. And the law is powerless to deliver you. It doesn't set sinners free. So it points beyond itself to faith in Jesus Christ. It it points to the promise. The law tutors you to faith in Christ. So the law acts as a guardian or a custodian. It leads you to Christ. It drives you to Christ. It's like a giant arrow pointing you to Jesus Christ. You need Jesus, is what the law is saying. You need Jesus. And it compels you away from your own performance, away from your works, and toward faith. A simple, humble faith in God's promise. That's the role of God's law. So it had a temporary role in the history of redemption. The law was always causing sinners to look up and anticipate the coming of a future Messiah. It was constantly reminding Israel and anyone else who would listen that a sin bearer was coming and that faith in him was necessary. It was never about works. The law was never intended to be the basis of salvation, whereby sinners would earn their way or merit their way into acceptance with God. That was never his design. Now, unbelieving Israel tried to use it that way. That's how you end up with a nation full of Pharisees, by the way. Take the law that was intended to magnify sin and the need for faith and then turn it into a system of rules for earning righteousness. That's how you end up with whitewashed tombs. So Paul's confronting the Judaizers here with their ungodly use of of the law, while at the same time instructing the churches in Galatia about the guardianship of the law, the right view of the law. And once faith has come, once faith is revealed, once justification is secured, the law ceases to act as a guardian. It's convicting, sin-highlighting work is done. As the GPS says, you have arrived at your destination. Why? Because through faith in Christ Jesus, you become sons. You become sons of God through faith in God's promise. When you're united to Jesus Christ by faith, you become one with him. When you're you're baptized into Christ and you put on Christ, you all become one 
in Christ, one with him and one with each other. Ethnicity is no advantage or disadvantage. Social status isn't determinative. Gender is immaterial. Faith in Christ is what matters. And through faith in Christ alone, you become a son of God. Through faith only, you become one who belongs to him. And do you see that in verse 29? Verse 29 is very important, very sweet. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. There it is. There it is. The promise was given to Christ. He is the offspring of Abraham. And when a sinner turns from his own sin and turns to Christ by faith, they become a part of God's family. In Christ, through faith, they become Abraham's offspring as well. Christ's life becomes their life. And this is the glory and the wonder of the gospel. Do you see it this morning, brother and sister? Jesus is at the center of the Old Testament promises. You can have the gift of the Spirit and you can have the assurance of life only because of Him. The promise of Abraham was given to Jesus Christ. He is the offspring. He is the seed. He is the fulfillment of the promise and the recipient of God's covenant. So do you see how He's the centerpiece of the Bible? These scriptures are all about Him. They're all about Jesus Christ. And all of history pivots on Him. The Father loves Him. And the Father has made a sure covenant with Him. So all the blessings of the covenant are His. The promise to have a great name is His. The promise of land is His. The promise to become a great nation is His. The promise that all the families of the earth shall be blessed is His. It's Jesus' promise. Jesus has a great name, doesn't He? He humbled Himself here on earth by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, Philippians 2.9 says, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. That's the name that Jesus has been given. The promise of land is given to Jesus. And God's not primarily concerned with a square of land in the Middle East. In Romans 4.13, Paul writes, The promise to Abraham and his offspring is that he would be heir of the world. And that didn't come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Abraham, and by extension Jesus, was heir of the world. Heir of the whole cosmos. That's his inheritance. And I would argue it's the inheritance mentioned in verse 18 in our passage. Jesus receives the whole cosmos. And it's a new creation. He has inaugurated the new creation. And one day he will rule over a new heavens and a new earth. And the promise to become a great nation was given to Jesus Christ. He's the offspring. He's the seed. He would produce a people like the stars of the heavens. He'd be given a people like the sand of the seashore. Listen to Isaiah 53, verse 10. Listen carefully. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The Father has put the Son to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What is Isaiah 53 verse 10 saying? Well, it's a prophecy about Jesus Christ. And at the cross, the Lord crushed him. 
Jesus was punished as a sinner. He was judged as guilty. He endured the wrath of God as if a lawbreaker. Yet he was innocent. Jesus never sinned. He did no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus was without sin, but he was condemned as a sinner. Why? Because he stood in your place, brother and sister. That's why. All of your sins were imputed to Jesus Christ at the cross. Your foolishness became his. Your darkness became his. Your uncleanness became his. All your wickedness was imputed to him. Your pride was credited to his account. Your idolatry was credited to his account. Your lust and your anger was credited to his account. All your disobedience and all your rebellion became his. And he suffered and died on your behalf. Dear church, Jesus Christ was pierced for your transgressions. And he was crushed for your iniquities. That's how his soul made an offering for guilt in the verse that I just read. He became an atoning sacrifice for you. That's all what Jesus did on the cross. And did you hear how Isaiah 53 verse 10 ended? He shall see what? He shall see his offspring. And he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That's all resurrection talk. After having made an atonement for sin, Jesus was raised from the dead. He was brought alive from the grave. And he sees his offspring. And who is that? Who's Christ's offspring, church? It's you. It's you. You are now Abraham's offspring by faith. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So now you are exalted and given a great name. You've been made alive together with Christ. You've been raised up with Him and seated with Him in heavenly places. You're now a new creature in Christ Jesus. You're now a part of of Christ's great nation. What does Peter say in 1 Peter? You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. That's all yours now, dear saint. By faith, according to promise. Christian, that's you. You've been declared righteous. You've been justified. You've been adopted as God's son. And you've been set free from sin. And now in Christ... All the families of the earth are blessed. Jesus is ransoming a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And that means that there is great opportunity for you, dear unbeliever. There is great opportunity for you to come to Christ. In a group this large, I am absolutely sure that there are some here that don't know Jesus Christ. And if you've never believed the gospel, if you've never put your faith in him, there's no reason why Jesus couldn't become your savior today. The good news that I'm proclaiming this morning is that Jesus is inviting all kinds of sinners to come to him. Sinners just like you. So dear unbelieving friend, listen to me. Please take a moment and listen to me. You don't have to work to become good enough and to earn your right standing before God, your creator. There are no prerequisites to coming to faith in Christ other than recognizing your need for him, which the law is trying to help you do. You can't work to earn God's favor. You're unable 
to earn God's favor. You can't keep the law. And the more you try, the more burdened you feel. The more you try to keep the law, the, the more weary you get because you fail and you only further prove that you're enslaved to sin. And through the law, God is saying, you need a savior. You need a savior. You need Jesus. Look away from yourself and look to him. And if you place your faith in Jesus Christ today, he will declare you righteous. If you turn to Jesus Christ by faith alone, trusting him alone, he will justify you. He'll cleanse you. He'll forgive you. He'll remove your sin as far from you as the east is from the west. That's what he loves to do. And he'll set you free from the power of sin. Apart from Christ, you're imprisoned by your own sin. You're held captive under the law. You're in bondage without hope. This is the ugly anatomy of every kind of addiction. Whether you're a workaholic or a gospel, a gossip, or whether you're given over to pornography and lust, or whether you're abusing alcohol, underneath every enslaving sin is a wicked heart. Greed, selfishness, jealousy, idolatry, you name it. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, quite the list. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so if your life is characterized by any of these sins, if you continue to be enslaved by your sin, you will not inherit eternal life. Which means your destiny is hell, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. All those who remain in their sins will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. It's awful. There's nothing more terrifying that I can imagine than the isolation and the punishment and the hopelessness of an eternity in hell. No joy, no peace, no hope, no life. So, unbelieving friend, if you're here this morning, would you like to be delivered from your sin? Would you like to be adopted into God's family and given a divine inheritance? Would you like to be made new in Jesus Christ? Then turn to him. Trust in him by faith alone. Find life as a son. Find hope and joy. In Southwest Harbor, you are Christ's. You belong to him, which means you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You're sons. Brothers and sisters, you're sons of God, and he is your heavenly father. Now, ladies, don't stumble over this term, sons. We're all adopted as sons, and as a son, you receive an inheritance. You're an heir. The inheritance always goes to the son. And if you don't like that, just remember all the men here have to be the bride of Christ. That's not natural for us. So it goes both ways. All of you are sons of God through faith. You have a special and a dear relationship to your Father in heaven. You've been adopted into his family on the basis of your justification by faith. And according to Galatians 4, 6, God has sent the spirit of his son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. 
But your relationship with him is threatened. Maybe not by Judaizers, but nevertheless, your view of God as father is in danger. Your own unfortunate experiences, maybe, can sully your view of God. Your own sin and confusion can distort how you relate to God as your father. And doctrine is just as much under attack today as it was in the first century of the church. So let me ask you this morning, are you feeling accepted, dear Christian, before God your Father? Are you able to rest in Him and enjoy Him as your heavenly, loving Father? How was it that you came to be accepted by God in the first place? Wasn't it by faith alone? You just trusted Him, right? Remember, you came to him bankrupt and impoverished. You were, you were needy and weak. You were just an unattractive, ungodly sinner. And God accepted you. He accepted you on the basis of faith, on the basis of Christ's work on the cross, because God loves to justify the ungodly. And that's who you were. But he accepted you, didn't he? He received you. And you now belong to him. And he's happy with you. Simply on the basis of your faith in Jesus Christ. Doesn't that warm your heart this morning? Doesn't that make your heart tender? Doesn't it encourage you to draw near to your heavenly Father? And so if you've been feeling a little dull lately, here's the antidote. If your heart has hardened a bit toward the Lord, I think this can soften it. It can. God loves you as a son. He cares for you. He protects you. He provides for you. Can I say it this way? He likes you. He really does. And it's true even if he's been leading you through something extremely difficult lately. Has a trial or a challenge of some kind caused you to to kind of shrink back from God? Let justification protect your thinking. And let sonship woo you back to him. He wants you to cry, Abba, Father, because you're alive as a son. Or maybe you felt really guilty lately. Are you here and you just feel extremely ashamed of your sin? Has the sight of your lust or your anger or your anxiety or your pride discouraged you lately? Or maybe you're embarrassed by your Christian performance. Uh, So I'm wondering if it's difficult for you to just come freely to God because you feel like you're a failure. God stands ready to accept you. And how are you accepted? By faith alone. That's how. No performance, no good works, no moral reform can improve your justified status. God declared you righteous when you first believed. And that declaration has not changed. So come near to God and say, Abba, Father, believe his ongoing promise to you to come to him and be a son. Delight in his grace and celebrate the acceptance that is now yours in Christ Jesus. And church, because you're alive as sons, you also enjoy power over your sin. You're no longer imprisoned under sin and held captive under the law. You've been set free from bondage. You're no longer sold under sin, but you're under grace. Romans 6, 7 says, you have been justified from sin. Sin no longer has dominion over you. But your sonship is threatened if this is unclear to you. 
When you were justified, brother and sister, you were set free from sin. Do you believe that this morning? Justification necessarily produces freedom from sin and the fruit of repentance. Before you were justified, you were a slave to sin. But after you were justified, you became a slave of righteousness. You became obedient from the heart as a slave to God. That's what happened. And justification by faith alone always results in newness of life. Every time a sinner is united to Jesus Christ by faith, he dies to sin and he's made alive together with Christ as a son. And so you're no longer under law, you're under grace. Or, as Paul says in Galatians, you are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set you free. So in Christ, as sons, you're no longer enslaved to sin. Sin no longer has dominion over you. And I'm wondering this morning if you have optimism. Optimism that's commensurate with your sonship. Are you hopeful and confident in your ability to overcome sin? God has freely given you his spirit. It was given according to promise. And so your justification has secured your life in the Spirit, which means the fruit of the Spirit is yours. Love, joy, peace, you know those. They're yours in Christ. And against such, Galatians 5.23 says, there is no law. So let me ask you this morning in closing, how is your private life going? Are you walking in godliness and purity and holiness and righteousness? Or have you lost sight of who you are in Christ? God has justified you. He's removed your guilt, but he's also empowered you to no longer be enslaved to sin. So men, are you allowing yourself glimpses of material that's inappropriate or pornographic? How's your anger? Have you been acting harshly towards your wife or your kids? Have you been a peacemaker in your home? Have you been grumpy in your home? How's your attitude at work? Husbands, are you sacrificing for your wife, bearing weight as a leader? Ladies, have you allowed fear or anxiety to get the upper hand in your lives? Moms, have you been patient with your children? Wives, have you been submitting to and respecting your husbands with joy? I don't ask these questions to provoke guilt in you. I want you to lay hold of your sonship and recognize in Jesus Christ you can say no to those patterned sins, those things that are plaguing you. At every turn, you have the ability in Christ to not sin. And so you can choose to do the right thing. You can resist temptation. You can have a good attitude. You're free in Christ to live obediently and to live righteously. The flesh has been crucified because you belong to Jesus Christ. And publicly, Together, you are all alive as sons. You're free to love, which means you're free to love one another. Galatians 5, verses 13 and 14 say this. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor, your Christian neighbor, as yourself. And so how are you doing, Southwest Harbor? Loving one another by the power of God's Spirit. As sons, knit to one another and bound to one another through justification by faith. Justification levels the playing field. Faith is the great equalizer among you. Think a minute about how God has accepted you. What did you do to merit his favor? Nothing. So think about your Christian neighbor. What does he or she have to do to merit your full acceptance? Nothing. 
You can love him. You can love her freely. Isn't it wonderful this morning to know that you've been justified by faith and by faith alone? So love one another. Serve one another. And know God and enjoy God as Father. The life of the Spirit has been secured for you because he's given according to promise. You're now sons called upon to persevere in faith, to continue believing. As we close, listen to the Westminster Confession of Faith speak about adoption. Listen to this. All those that are justified, God vouchsafeth in and for his only Son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. Have his name put upon them. Receive the spirit of adoption. Have access to the throne of grace with boldness. Are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. Are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption. And inherit his promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Brothers and sisters, enjoy the promise by faith. You are alive as sons. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for this dear church. Thank you for these brothers and sisters for whom Christ shed his blood. And I pray that you would give them grace to trust you and and to find their safety and security in you. And then to come together as a church and to love and serve one another by your grace through faith alone. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this sweet opportunity to be together. We give all these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.